According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John 14. John 14. We are dealing with chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, all as a single unit, which is quite a bit. That's a lengthy portion of the scriptures to handle on a single outline, but that's what we're dealing with in episode 23. Remember, we're following a harmony of the Gospels that we've adapted from a couple of different sources, blended with some other date adjustments and so forth. So it really is our own unique harmony of the Gospels when it comes right down to it because of the adaptations we've made, the uh, sequence uh, adjustments that we've made. The uh, I think the original outline came from A.T. Robertson, so if you use his harmony of the Gospels, you'll have basically the, the gist of the, of the points. In other words, episode 23 will be called Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer, and you'll get that out of the A.T. Robertson harmony of the Gospels. However... I'm pretty sure Robertson was not a 33 A.D. kind of guy. We've made the adjustments based on our understanding of the chronology that our Savior uh, went to the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And uh, I don't uh, part fellowship with anybody that holds to a 30 or a 32 crucifixion. Likewise, I teach a Friday crucifixion. There are people that teach a Thursday crucifixion or a Wednesday crucifixion. Um, I had forgotten that Colonel Thiem teaches a Wednesday crucifixion, and somebody brought that up the other day telling me that, you know, because I teach something different than the Colonel, I've got to be wrong. And I say, well, you know, he's in heaven now, so he's, he's learned better. It's a, it's a Friday crucifixion. <laughs> All right. Different things like that. Somebody else sent me a uh, video of uh, John MacArthur in two parts so that I can get my doctrine straight at, straightened out on some other aspect of things. And in any event, episode 23, Last Speech to the Apostles and Intercessory Prayer, John 14. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the privilege we have once again to come together. We ask for your hand of blessing upon this time of study, Father, that your uh, word as it goes forth would not be hindered by any human limitations or weaknesses on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers. Father, that you would hedge us about and protect us. Uh, there are those that would want to come in here and stop what we're doing or bring us to harm. Father, uh, protect us, hedge us about, allow for this day to glorify your Son. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are uh, ready for point four, and we actually got a good start on point four last week, but we have some folks here. Good to see you here this morning. Appreciate that. And if, uh, if you weren't here for the previous classes, uh, let me just bring you up to speed a little bit. In order to understand John 14, you have to understand the change of content that took place at the end of chapter 13. And so in the outline under point one, the points of study from John 13, 31 through 38, should be reviewed before proceeding on. If you don't understand that there's a change of context at the end of chapter 13, you will not understand what's happening here in these chapters. In verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now. And we're paying attention to these adverbs of time, the adverb now, that fixes on the departure of Judas Iscariot from the upper room. That when the unbeliever departs, he's going out to get the soldiers to come back and to arrest Jesus and, and, and so forth. 
And so now is the Son of Man glorified. Once the, the, uh, the betrayal is secured, the, the impact on now becomes very important. We're going to see a similar expression from now on in chapter 14 and verse 7. From now on. There's a, a time indicator there. It's an adverb of time that points out that it was not possible up to this very night for them to have an understanding of him and an understanding of the Father, not like they're going to have in the church age. All right, so we pay attention to these things. The points of study should be reviewed. And it's important that this is a, a study that relates to glory. It relates to an ascended Savior. Uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is going to be with His Father, seated in heaven. That we have the, uh, the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of the Father. That's, uh, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. The fact that it's fulfilled now in the church age as a past completed action. Believers prior to the church were looking forward to the coming Messiah. We have an opportunity to testify to the victorious Messiah, the one who did the will of the Father, the one who ascended to the Father. And so it's the obedience of Christ to the will of the Father. This is what allows for this glory. And we live in this age of glory. Verses 31 and 32, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him, in Christ. And all of that is doctrine that relates to the church that these disciples on the night in which Christ was betrayed, they couldn't even start to understand. They didn't have the book of Ephesians. How are they going to understand in Christ? They're not going to understand in Christ and how the Father is going to be glorified in Christ. Yes, sir. Ah, okay. Thank you. So we want to understand the obedience of Christ to the will of the Father and the glorification of the Son of Man, the glorification of God the Father in Christ. This is our uh, delight here in the church age to bring about. Point B, this idea that it's an immediate glory. It's an immediate glory. You and I live in the stewardship of immediate glory. Immediate glory to the Father and the Son. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. Their, uh, their perspective was future glory, waiting for Messiah to come, waiting for the kingdom to be established, waiting for the Gentiles to be overthrown, waiting, 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 waiting. It's kind of like when you're a kid growing up and everything is just waiting, 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 waiting for a driver's license, waiting to be an adult, waiting to turn 21, waiting to vote, waiting to live on your own, waiting to leave, leave home. And it's like your whole time growing up is just waiting, 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 waiting. And then you finally get there and you wish you could go back to when life was easier. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the stewardship of Israel. Waiting, 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 waiting for this coming kingdom, coming glory, coming Messiah. We have the reality. The Messiah came. The Messiah was victorious. Messiah has returned to his father. Now, we are still waiting in terms of for the Savior returning, taking us home and the rapture and things of that nature. But while we're waiting, we don't have to wait for a future glory. We have a present glory. We're not serving shadows, anticipating a future reality. We're operating in the present reality. So when we, when we are glorifying Christ here on the earth, we are laying up treasures in heaven now, today, all day, every day. It is an immediate glory. When we offer up a prayer, there's incense being filled in those bowls of heaven and the angels are pouring it out before the Father. That's immediate glory that happens right here, right now. And so the new command, uh, conditions of immediate glory demand a new commandment, and that is the commandment of reciprocal love. Israel was never given the command to love one another and prove to be Christ's disciples. They had plenty of commands, but not the command to love one another on a mutual reciprocal basis to the glory of Jesus Christ. This is a new command for the church. And so the biggest thing we pick up on is that at the end of chapter 13, 
we have an absolutely earth-shattering um, adjustment in our thinking that this is not something that's uh, this, not a message that's crafted for Old Testament believers. That starting here at the end of chapter 13 and it carries into chapter 14, 15, 16, and then the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, none of that is going to make any sense to an Old Testament believer. It is all looking forward to the pending arrival of the church. All right, we've got to be very clear on that. Which gets, gets us then into main point two. The dispensations. What were the dispensations that preceded the church? The church hasn't been around forever. Adam wasn't the first pastor. Eve wasn't the first pastor's wife. Cain and Abel weren't the first deacons. All right? Um, man didn't fall into sin out of innocence into conscience and then all of a sudden here's the church. No. We had a Gentile stewardship. And then with the call of Abraham, we had a Jewish stewardship. With the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, renamed Israel, we have the dispensation of Israel. And they were placed not under grace for an operating system, but under law for an operating system. Why was Mosaic law given? And we have a progression. And if you can't think your way through that progression, I think you're in trouble. And even before man was around, angels had a stewardship on this earth. So the dispensations of angels, man, and Israel, they could never envision a stewardship with immediate glory to the Father and to the Son of Man. Their whole focus was forward, looking forward, all right? That uh, Messiah is coming. There is a future glory. We are the only ones that have been operating in this immediate glory uh, reality. That's huge. And so as we move into chapter 14, then we start to see, well, what are the important doctrines? Uh, since we are a new stewardship, since we are a, operating in a new reality, what sort of doctrines ought we uh, focus on? Well, the very first doctrine we ought to focus on is the doctrine of the rapture. And that's why we spent a couple of weeks dealing with point three in this outline. The first doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of the rapture. The Gentiles didn't receive this doctrine. Israel didn't receive this doctrine. Why would they? They don't need it not for them only the church is waiting for a moment in time when the trumpet will sound when the dead in christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air it is a one-time event and the and the stewardship that experiences that event is the church not israel not the gentiles i do find it rather interesting that we have a foreshadowing of this with one gentile rapture and one Jewish rapture that took place. Enoch was, was, didn't die. Enoch was caught up to be with the Lord. And that's the Gentile example. And, uh, and then Elijah didn't die. Elijah you know, ascended in the fiery chariot. So you have one Gentile example. You have one Jew example whereby two human beings in the history of planet Earth, two human beings departed Earth without physical death. And they're the only two. All right. One Gentile, Enoch, and one Jew, Elijah. And so... You have a, a, a picture, a shadow, just little glimmers of hints, but you don't have a doctrine. You don't have any Bible passages explaining why there was one Gentile or why there was one Jew. Uh, the Bible tells us that Enoch was taken up, but it doesn't say why. The Bible tells us that Elijah was caught up, but it doesn't tell us why. Not until the New Testament we start to get the doctrine of the rapture, that I go to prepare a place for you, that when I come, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am in heaven, preparing this place for you, there you may be also. This is on the night in which he's betrayed. He's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to go to heaven to be returned to his father. And he's promising his disciples that he is preparing a heavenly home for them. 
Again, would this be something that Israel would anticipate? No. Israel was expecting an earthly kingdom. In fact, Israel, even the Gentiles were expecting an earthly kingdom. Job said that I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end I will stand again and, and be with my Redeemer. Likewise, Israel has a hope of a resurrection, but it's a resurrection to this earth with their land grant in place. You talk about going to heaven when you die or being resurrected and going to heaven in glory. Old Testament believers weren't looking forward to going to heaven. Heaven's where the Lord is. Heaven is where the angels dwell. See, and uh, this is this is new stuff. And rapture ought to be an encouraging passage. Every time you've got rapture doctrine, you've got encouragement. Right here it says, do not let your heart be troubled. In First Thessalonians it says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Rapture doctrine is encouraging doctrine. All right. Which now gets us to uh, point four. The second, the second doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of greater works. The doctrine of greater works. The idea that we are going to do greater works than Jesus Christ. How could the Gentiles teach a doctrine of greater works? They're, they're, they're looking forward to the coming of the, of the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. Right? And uh, how could Israel anticipate greater works than their Messiah? Messiah is a pinnacle. They're looking forward to Messiah to come and do everything and give them a kingdom and, and all of this. The idea that a group of believers is going to do something greater than Messiah, that's unthinkable. And yet it's described in this, in this fashion. If you had known me, you would know my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. So Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father. And we're going to break this down for you. It's not Philip's fault. It's not the disciples' fault. The uh, Israel and their stewardship could not have the patrological intimacy that we have. This requires us to come to the Father through Jesus Christ. That's verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Until Jesus Christ walked this earth and achieved his victory, no stewardship could have the patrological intimacy that we have. That's just one possible. They were looking forward to the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ. No idea that once He came, through Him then, we get to go to the Father. You see the progression on that? God the Son is coming, and because He came, we can now go to the Father. It's a powerful contrast. Verse 10 says, Do you not believe, or you do not believe, as a statement? Or, I suppose you could even take it as... No, you can't really take it as an imperative the way that it's negated there. It's either a question or a statement. You do not believe, do you not believe, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me, there, that is a command, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now here comes what we have a hard time believing, but He tells us to believe it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Our priesthood, our ambassadorship, our soldier function, our Christian way of life is patterned after his and is greater than his in terms of the works that we achieve here in time. Greater than what Jesus Christ accomplished in his first advent incarnation. Now, some... Believers don't like that. They don't like the way that's uh, worded or phrased. Well, it's in the text. 
deal with it. <laughs> All right? Greater works. And this isn't the only time he's told us about it either. He told us about it back in chapter 5. And we'll review that here today as well. All right. So this oneness with the Father, this unity, this abiding. He abides in the Father, the Father abides in Him. And we're going to do greater works. Why? Because we're going to have Christ abiding in us and the Father abiding in us. We're going to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We're going to have a full Trinitarian indwelling. And Jesus didn't indwell Himself, right? The Father abided in Him and He had the Holy Spirit, but He didn't have Himself abiding in Himself, right? We do. We have a greater abiding than He had. Because we have everything he had plus him. Okay? Does that make sense? And so in our stewardship, we have even greater uh, resources available. We have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus didn't have that. We have an advocate seated in glory, victorious. Jesus didn't have that. We do. All right. So let's start to spoil these things out. I've got points A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And if I have to keep you here till four this afternoon, I'm going to keep you here. No, I'm teasing. We'll be done at 11 o'clock. All right. But I find it remarkable. There's, there's a, actually a, a wonderful, when you look at the Greek and you, and you see the, the flow here, you, ha, you go from what you don't know to what you still don't know to what you ought to know and what you're going to know. And it's kind of interesting. He says here, if you had known me, you realize that? If you had known me. Okay, now this is a second class condition. It is not true. And it is known to not be true. It's called a counterfactual if you pursue uh, logic or philosophy studies and so forth. If you had known me. It's a counterfactual. It is not true. Had it been true, then something else would have been the result. But it wasn't true. All right. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So, Take that counterfactual to its conclusion. You did not know me. You still don't know me. And so you don't know the Father. But you're going to. Because from now on, you're going to know me. And you're going to know me in a very powerful way, a way that you've never known me before. And because you know me in this very powerful way, the way you've never known me before, you're going to know the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. By knowing me in this powerful way, this intimate way. All right. And what is this about? Well, it's going to require the, the crucified Lord. It's going to require the crucified and risen Lord. And this is what we saw under point A and B. We'll deal with this. The, um, the necessity for knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. No Old Testament believer could know him this way. The incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ did not allow even his closest disciples to know him or to know the Father. This is his statement. They don't know him. Now, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the disciple writing this book, writing this description. And he's included in this crowd that they don't know him. Not yet. Jesus loves him. He loves Jesus. He lies. In, he reclines in, in Jesus' bosom. But he does not know him. Not in the intimate way that he will know him in the church age. Not in a way that causes him to fully see, to fully know, to fully approach the Father through Him. No man comes to the Father but through Me. And, and the, the idea of knowing Him as the Father knows Him, this is what we get to. This is why we have creation. This is why the Father who loves the Son has designed all things through Him and for Him. All right? The Father wants us to love the Son like He loves the Son. And only when 
we, we come to grips with that, are we going to have an approach to the Father in Jesus' name? Spiritual intimacy is only possible from now on as this intimacy requires knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 and Philippians 3.10. These are New Testament passages that reference the church age in a reality that an Old Testament believer could not approach. This is the idea of knowing that, uh, that goes, back to, um, goes back to the idiom related to uh, the, uh, you know, the Hebrew language, the idea of knowing, which is a sexual reference in the sense that the man knew his wife. And, uh, and if you know somebody to that degree of intimacy, then that, the Bible uses that language. It's the same verb in Hebrew, same verb in Greek. All right? And the idea of knowing with this intimacy, to see him completely, to see the Father through him, so spiritual intimacy is only possible from now on. Again, we have uh, his statement there in verse 7. From now on, you know him. So do you see that there in verse 7? The verse starts with you don't, and then it ends with from now on, you do. From now on, you do. So what's the difference between the first part of the verse and the last part of the verse? That, that, that hinge of from now on. And what's going on tonight in the life of Christ? He's getting arrested. He's going to the cross. So it's from now on. It's only with a crucified Savior that you can truly know. That you can truly know. Now, do you... Um, how do you know um, somebody loves you? Do you know somebody loves you because they say, I love you? Or do you know somebody loves you because they demonstrate it? And if they say one thing but demonstrate something else... What uh, <laughs> what speaks louder, right? Is it words speak louder than actions or actions speak louder than words? Okay. And when they make a claim of love, but they don't show that claim of love, or it's a different kind of love, right? Is it sacrificial, unconditional, integrity love, according to the will of God with a biblical foundation? Or is it just a worldly thing, right? Like, I love cheeseburgers, Okay. Oh, I love cheeseburgers. I love bacon cheeseburgers. Okay. But my love for bacon cheeseburgers and my love for Sharon or my love for my children or my love for my flock, or you, you understand why there's a difference? All right. And what speaks louder than words? The actions do. And what's the reality? Now, we know because the word said, the Bible says God so loved the world. But hearing it and seeing it, are they different things? Can we truly know the love of God before Calvary? Not like we do after Calvary, right? We see the love of God. That's why it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's that sacrificial death on the cross that is the pinnacle. It is the greatest testimony of love there's ever been in the history of the universe. And so we see it here. Determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's nothing else that needs to be said. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the pinnacle of agape love. And we're to be imitators of that. Likewise, Philippians 3.10. The fellowship of His sufferings being conformable to His death. I mean, it says that I may know Him 
This is, this is the, uh, the, the pinnacle of knowing Him. Knowing and understanding His sacrifice. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Only at that point will I have a frame of reference to appreciate His agape love. The love I'm commanded to have. And so the from now on statement I think is, is uh, a blessing for us. It allows us to, to understand what our privilege is in the church. That it is greater than anything we've ever seen before. Point B then. Philip requested a demonstration of the Father. Show us the Father. And uh, this is where we ran out of time and I want to pick it up here. Uh, Philip requested a demonstration of the Father. Show me. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I've highlighted this a few times already, but this this whole segment, this night in which Jesus is betrayed, you've got bewildered disciples. Their heads are spinning. They don't understand what they're hearing. And you've got got Peter interrupting him in chapter 13 saying, Lord, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. And then you've got uh, Peter saying, well, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. And they're confused. They don't understand why he's talking the way he's talking. And, and Thomas in chapter 14 says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And then Judas, not Iscariot, jumps in at you in, in verse 22 of John 14. All right. It's pretty easy to spot these because these are the only black letter verses of these chapters. <laughs> the rest of these are all red letter on, in this, uh, on this page. So your, your eye just scans down here and you see black letters. And there's Peter. There's Philip. There's... Um, Thomas and there's uh, there's Judas. Show us the Father, show us the Father, and Jesus is just bamboozled. How can you ask a question like that? What has he been doing for the last three and a half years? This is why it becomes unthinkable in his response. All right, now the verb to show, the verb to show is deknumi, and uh, I believe we looked at Luke. 20, 22, and 24. We looked at all the Luke references and we left off having not seen the John references at this point. But the demonstration idea, God is not opposed to this. This is not um, wrong necessarily to want to see something. Um, you know, it's more blessed uh, You know, if you, if you have faith and, and accept God's promises without the demonstration. But he does give demonstration. He never asks us to believe in nothing. He gives us evidence, reasons to believe and so forth. Uh, that he gives a promise and then he gives a sign to go with the promise and different components of that. But let's look at John now. John 5.20. And let's uh, start to review. It's a verb that is used in John 5, John 10, John 14, where we are today. And then it'll come up again in John 20. But deknumi is to demonstrate, to show. And in a lot of ways, this is uh, simply the uh, this is uh, the nature of love. It's the nature of parental love. We see it played out here with the father and the son. John five uh, nineteen, coming in the midst of hostility, he says, "My father is working until now. I myself am working." In verse seventeen, they they kept accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker. He says, well, my father's working until now. I myself am working. It's something you saw his father doing. He learned from it. He's following that example. 
And so now the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him because he was making himself equal to God and calling God his own father. So verse 19, Jesus answered was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Jesus didn't come to earth to exercise his deity as God, the son. He came to earth in obedience, accomplishing only that which the father gave for him to do. Teaching only that which the father gave for him to teach. Notice now, uh, whatever he sees the Father doing, these things the Son also does in like manner. This is how he learns to do what he's doing. And it's, it's similar to what we see with, with little kids. You raise children. You teach them how to tie their shoes. You show them how to tie their shoes. They watch you tie your shoes. They watch you tie their shoes. Then they, uh, then they try tying their shoes. And they make a big mess of it, but eventually they figure it out. All right? This is the father-son pattern that we have. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him, that's our verb, deknumi, all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And so this is similar to what we're seeing in chapter 14, the idea of greater works. And everything Jesus is doing here in His first advent, there is greater stuff yet to come. And the disciples themselves are going to be the eyewitnesses to that. They themselves are going to be the performers of those greater things. So that you will marvel. So it's used twice here. The showing is uh, used twice in verse 20. So the Father shows the Son, the Son does. The Father and the Son show us, we do. And what we do is greater than what Jesus did. We'll talk about how it could be greater here uh, shortly. All right, over to John 10, another use of Deknumi. More conflict with his accusers, more conflict with the, uh, the legalists, people that will never be happy with anything, no matter what. And uh, he says that the Father holds believers in his hand, the Son holds believers in his hand. No one can snatch them out of the uh, Father's hand, no one can snatch them out of his hand. So if you're saved, you're held by two hands of sovereignty. You think you can lose that? <laughs> if God the Father is holding you secure and God the Son is holding you secure, how are you going to lose your salvation? you got two members, omnipotent members of Trinity holding you secure. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them uh, to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. They say, you're a blasphemer. Now, anybody but God the Son saying this is a blasphemer. If I say this, I'm a blasphemer. I can't claim to be God or equal to God. But God the Son can. Jesus is God. He's, it's not a claim of blasphemy. They'll ultimately put him on the cross for what they think is his blasphemy. And he's the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. So they pick up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you, this is Dick Numi, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? <laughs> I love that. You, you, like the, you like the sarcasm with that? I, I do. Yeah, it just resonates with my sense of humor. You know, was it the feeding of the 5,000? Was it the man born blind? Was it walking on water? You know, all these miracles I did, all these works I did. I showed you many works from the Father. Which one of them now are you stoning me for? Well, Jesus, the Jews then answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And this is where they're wrong. This is where they're wrong. So they have an assumption. 
And because of that assumption, they're wrong about everything else. Almost like when the accusers showed up to, uh, at Job's front door. They were there with an assumption. And because of that assumption, they were wrong about everything else. And I love this. He gives them a scripture and says, answer me that. And they can't. So he quotes from Psalm 82. He says, has it not been written in your law? I said you were gods. He says, can you explain that one? And if nothing else, this is where a humble person will, will stop what they're doing and say, you know what, you're right. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I don't know what that passage is about. I obviously don't know what you're about. Um, they could at least have a humility. I think some of the Pharisees did this. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, other, other Pharisees finally just kind of gave up and said, you know what, he's doing these miracles. He's got to be from God. Maybe we should listen to what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, you think? All right. So the fact that he's showing these miracles. And, and how many miracles are they doing? None, right? So they're doing no miracles. He's doing all these miracles. Should he be listening to them or should they be listening to him? Who has the heavenly message? Okay, obviously he does. John 14 is where we are today with uh, show me. Philip says, me," And he says, how can you say me?" Philip says, show me, and Jesus says, how can you say show me? I've been doing this for three and a half years. Haven't you been looking? Okay, we'll talk about that because this is one of the purposes for which he came. But he came to show things that could not be perceived at the time, only afterwards with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. With hindsight looking back, will things start to make sense? And that's, uh, that's an amazing way that God's Word works. And then finally, the last use of Dake Numi here is in 2020. John 2020. Evening on the first day, or evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews, they're under conflict, they're under persecution. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. That would, would that scare you? <laughs> you know, you think you're alone, the doors are locked, you've got the alarm set on stay, and uh, all of a sudden the voice says, uh, peace be with you. You know, and when he had said this, he showed them, he dick knew me, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The fact that in his glorified body, resurrected and glorified body, he still bears the marks of his, of his glory. And uh, the pierced hands, the pierced side, they are a feature of his resurrection body. It's caused a lot of theologians, going back to the early church fathers, to suspect that any church-age believer is going to bear the marks of their martyrdom. Um, I don't think we can say that definitively. I think we, we know about Christ, but is, that, is it fair to say that every church-age martyr is going to exhibit that? What do you do with the guys that Paul was beheaded? So is Paul going to walk around with his head, holding his head along, or, you know, are the Christians thrown to the, eaten by a lion? That's going to be kind of gruesome. Look like a bunch of horror flick zombies or something. Okay. Now, I suspect that Jesus and Jesus alone will have pierced hands and a pierced side, that you and I are not going to have uh, damaged resurrection bodies in, in that in that way. As if, you know, we're going to be martyred anyway. But be that as it may. Now, so this is our verb, Dick Numi. Philip says, show us, and that's enough. Show us, and that's enough. 
All right. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet. And the, the, uh, the terms in verse 9 that really grab your attention are the so long and the yet. So long and yet. Similar to what we have in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says, by now you should be teachers. Why is it that after all this time you're still drinking milk, taking in the doctrinal baby food? You should, by now, haven't you learned anything? So, here's a principle for you. Personal acquaintance. This is point C. Personal acquaintance does not produce spiritual intimacy solely on the basis of time spent together. Time itself does not do it. Personal acquaintance does not produce spiritual intimacy by itself. No matter how long you're acquainted with a person. Solely on the basis of time spent together. You can spend time with somebody and still not get to know them. How are you spending that time? How are you spending that time? In fact, you can spend time with somebody and grow further apart the longer you spend with them. Because of the attitudes in place while you are with them. Because you're with them but not with them. Are you with that? All right. You know, you could you could have a coworker for ten years and really not know him. You see him in the workplace. You know, you know a, little, a few things about him. Uh, but do you really know him? Do you know him intimately? Do you know his fears? Do you know his hopes? Do you know his goals? His dreams? Do you know his passions? Do you know his uh, objectives? And how do you learn these things? How do you find them out? Well, <laughs> you start to understand how this is going to work and how it is that no Old Testament believer could possibly know Jesus the way the church age does. See, because we have the, the marital relationship of being the bride of Christ, of, of the positional truth relationship of being in Christ, that we are in Him and He is in us. And we have this fellowship between Him and the Father. No Old Testament. Job could never know that. No, Moses could never know that. Daniel could never know that. But we can. Personal acquaintance does not produce spiritual intimacy solely on the basis of time spent together. You know, think about how this works in a local church. You could have somebody in, come into church for 10 years, 20 years, uh, but you don't really know them. They come in, they sit down, church is over, they get up, they leave. And you're not praying together. You're not fellowshipping together. You're not uh, coming to bear one another's burdens because you don't know one another's burdens. And you say, well, doctrine of privacy. That's between me and the Lord. How dare you? Stay out of my business. Okay? But we're commanded to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. How do I bear your burden if I don't know what your burden is? And I can pray for you, but it's better if I pray with you. See? And we got 102 prayer meetings uh, each year. No, more than that, 104. If you're a lady, you've got 52 more than that because the ladies have a third prayer meeting a week. Right? So the men can hit two a week, the women can hit three a week. You go, wow, there's 150, 155 prayer meetings a year. And you have the opportunity to uh, 
to pray together. You know, the, um, uh, the, uh, when, when, when you're bearing your soul and you're pouring out your heart, when you're interceding, you're never more Christ-like than when you're interceding on behalf of others. Because that's what he is. He's an intercessor. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. You know, I think about Gary Williams, you know, praying for his unbelieving daughter. And, and I think, you know, Doug prays for his daughter. And, and, and they're, they're pouring out their hearts. Remember Glenn Carnegie praying for his grandkids and everybody? And you just, you, you join in that. You join in that, see? Because you're praying right alongside. And you hear that and you're, you're like-minded with that. But just simply acquaintance and traveling. And I imagine the disciples, you know, knew him fairly well on an earthly basis. You know, you, when you walk everywhere you go, you have time to, to talk about stuff. <laughs> okay? And, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're sharing meals and you're, you're uh, camping out or you're uh, in, a, in a tavern somewhere or an inn. All right. And uh, whatever. I mean, they got to know him in earthly terms. But the statement is, you don't know me in verse seven. It's from now on that you will start to know me. And through me, you're going to know the father. All right. Have I, been, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Jesus, uh, point D, Jesus finds Philip's ignorance unthinkable. He finds it unthinkable. This is almost a how can you say this? How can you say this? We have similar things in our experience. How can you say this? And generally it's followed up by, uh, you don't know me at all. Right? <laughs> if you knew me, you wouldn't say that. Jesus finds Philip's ignorance unthinkable. After declaring their ignorance, he then laments it. After declaring their ignorance, he then laments it. And I don't find that contradictory. I think it's, it's um, what makes it incredible, makes it tough to believe is that this is his very purpose in coming to earth. This is his purpose that he's achieving flawlessly. And they don't understand that it's, that it's his purpose. They won't understand it's his purpose until they receive the Holy Spirit. It's like when he, uh, he stays behind in the temple at, at 12 years old and his mother comes back and his father comes back and he says, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? He did not know that they did not know. And he thought it was incredible that they did not know. Here he finds it incredible. Do you not know? No, you don't know. How can you not know? How can you not know? All right. This is incredible given his very purpose in coming to this earth. John 1.18, and when we see the fulfillment of this in John 17, he's going to close this portion, this episode, he's going to close with this high priestly prayer to the Father with this very declaration of mission accomplished and the disciples didn't even know what the mission was. This powerful way that the Gospel of John opens with the true light coming into the world. In that uh, there was the forerunner, there was John the Baptist who came to bear witness of the light. And then there was the true light which came into the world. And uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14, and God the Son took on human form. Entered into space and time in, in 
finite uh, mortality. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But they didn't know it at the time. It's only decades later when John writes this uh, Gospel that he fully understands what it was that they beheld. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He didn't know it in John 14. Jesus said, you don't know me and you don't know the Father. But decades later when John's writing this gospel and he has the the church age perspective to reflect back on it, he says, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. Then it says, uh, verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. That's the Father, the only begotten God. That's the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him And John didn't know it at the time. Lived with him for three and a half years of earthly ministry. Saw him go to the cross. Saw him raised. Saw him ascended to heaven. And only when the Holy Spirit descended did some of this doctrine start, this reality start to sink in. Was able to think back and to recognize that the whole time Jesus was walking this earth, He was manifesting the Father. He was exhibiting the Father. No one has seen God at any time. Remember, He's an invisible God. Uh, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. How do you see the invisible God? No Old Testament believer ever did. They saw glimpses and they saw theophanies of Christ, not the Father. Nobody saw the Father. All right. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Exegeted Him. Where we get the term to exegete. Where uh, you know a pastor tears apart a passage and breaks it down and spells it out and gives you, you know, six hours of teaching on a on a participle. All right, it's a it is a thorough, detailed, exhaustive, nauseating explanation. And this is what Jesus did for three and a half years in showing the Father. So this was the very purpose for coming. And in John 14, here's the disciples clueless that any of this was going on. This is the night in which Jesus betrayed. And Jesus says, you don't know me. If you'd have known me, you would have known the Father. Because I've spent the last three and a half years revealing the Father. All right. And when he finally finished his teaching, the message of chapter 14. And he's got to get this stuff out quick because the soldiers are on their way. And uh, again, we recognize in, in 1331, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's got to start giving these messages out as quick as he can before the soldiers show up. And he's got this powerful message in chapter 14. And when chapter 14 comes to an end, he says, uh, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. And so they're going to learn about love. They're going to learn about the Son. They're going to learn about the Father. But they're going to, it's going to take the cross to get them to learn it. Then he says, come, let us go up from here. Why? Because the soldiers are on their way. And so they leave the upper room and they start walking through Jerusalem. And um, he can't, he can't uh, stop talking. He's got to keep giving a Bible class. So he gives them the I am divine message while they're walking through the town. And about how the world hates you and how the Holy Spirit is coming. And uh, all the way through chapter 15, all the way through chapter 16, that they hate you, they're going to persecute you. Um, 
The hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. What's he doing? He's walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each one of you to his home and to leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Okay? And he's on the verge of entering into the garden. He's on the verge of, uh, of submitting to the Father's will to go to the cross, but he views himself as an overcomer already in John 16:33. And so Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now, why is he praying these things out loud? Why are the disciples allowed to listen to these things? Because they're going to learn by listening to him pray. Verse 3 says here, uh, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does it mean to be saved? If you're saved, what does that mean? It means you have eternal life. What does that mean? It means you know the Father. It means you've placed your faith in Christ. As a church-age believer, you've placed your faith in Christ and you have been brought to the Father. You are now a son or a daughter of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And then verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, has he gone to the cross yet when he says this? No. So what's this work he's talking about? This is the work he's talking about, about revealing the Father. This is the work about declaring the Father. What we saw in John 1.18. And he says he's done it. He's done it. These men haven't understood it. They haven't heard it. They haven't seen it. Because they haven't had eyes to see or ears to hear. It's going to take a church age perspective to see these things. But he says it's done. It's done. And so now he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. He's ready to resume that which he laid aside when he laid aside his privileges. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Notice that this is this this is remarkable. The men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Understand what happens when you get saved. You are a gift of God the Father to his son, Jesus Christ. All souls belong to the Father, whether you're saved or not. You're you're, uh, the believer, the unbeliever. All souls belong to the Father. But the Father gives you to the Son when you're saved. And it's the will of God the Father that the Son not lose even one. So that also makes it unthinkable that you could lose your salvation. For you to lose your salvation means that Jesus Christ has to fail in his assignment to the Father. That the Father gave you to him and he's going to lose you. No, he's going to be faithful to the Father. All right, so I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 7 says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Uh, we're going to deal with this in more detail when we get to chapter 17. I think that come to know is they have started to know. All right, They have barely reached the point where they're barely now starting to know. For the words which you have gave me, I have given to them, that they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Keep that in your mind because we're going to come back to that concept here in chapter 14. So Jesus finds Philip's ignorance unthinkable. He declared it, then he lamented it. 
And it's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost unthinkable. Like, how can you not know this? This is what we've been teaching. It's like, how can, how can a member of Austin Bible Church not know, um, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which what dwells? Why do you all know that? Because you've heard it 20,000 times over the last 10 years. It would be unthinkable for you to be scratching your head saying uh, in which, uh, of course you know, it's in which righteousness dwells. It's unthinkable that you wouldn't know that. And here's Jesus who spends three and a half years revealing the Father. And Philip says, hey, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Okay? Well, if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear or a heart to understand, you recognize that what they were seeing were things that would not digest until they received the Holy Spirit and the church age begins. Then they have the opportunity to look back. Okay? It's an Old Testament ministry, but it's written in Greek. <laughs> by church-age believers with a church-age perspective. That's huge. Nothing like it in the Old Testament. All right, point E. The abiding of the Father and the Son is the pattern which will be exhibited in the coming dispensation of the church. The abiding of the Father and the Son is the pattern which will be exhibited in the coming dispensation of the church. Verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. The abiding of the Father and the Son. They didn't have this in the Old Testament. Did God abide among man? Well, glory arrived to, um, uh, to live in, a, in the Holy of Holies. The glory of God came and uh, it was not approachable. <laughs> one guy one time a year could go in there. An Old Testament saint, the idea of the Father coming and abiding internally in my life, in my heart, in my, in my being, of Jesus Christ coming and abiding in my being, and I'm abiding in Him and He's abiding in me, there is nothing in the Old Testament that would give a, a, a pre-church believer any, any clue about this. All right. Do you not believe, verse 10, do you not believe, that's either a question or a statement. I don't mind how retranslated. It's effectively the same thing. You do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's been saying it since chapter 7, but they still are not grasping what it's about. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. An Old Testament believer has no clue about that. To, to their way of thinking... We have commands, we obey the commands, we do what we do so that we're pleasing in God's sight. The idea that we do what we do because God is in us working that? <laughs> that it's the Father who's at work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure? So it's no longer I that's doing the work trying to make Him happy, but it's Him doing the work through me that makes Him happy? To willing to do of His good pleasure? See, you and I, we deal with this all the time because this is our New Testament reality. But to them, this is revolutionary stuff. This is brand new. And here Jesus is the pattern of this because the Father ab abided in Him. So believe me. 
He says in verse 10, you don't. In verse 11, he says, start. (laughs) Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you can't believe me, then believe because of the works themselves. Believe because of the works themselves. You can't deny the works. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works. Why? Because I go to the Father. Because you're not going to have simply the abiding of the Father like I have. You're going to have more than that. You're going to have the abiding of the Father. You're going to have the abiding of the Son. And you're going to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Of course you're going to do greater works than me. Jesus had the abiding of the Father and he had an Old Testament uh, reception of the Holy Spirit. Like an Old Testament prophet would receive the, the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon Christ. Like the Spirit of God came upon David or came upon Samson or came upon Dave, uh, Moses or so forth. He didn't have a church age indwelling like we have an indwelling. We have the abiding Father, the abiding Son, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Of course we're going to do greater works than these. Because I go to the Father, we have a victorious Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of glory. So the abiding of the Father and the Son is the pattern which will be exhibited in the coming dispensation of the church. And to me, that's just awesome. I love that. Consider what we can do now because of the resources we have. The Father's living in me. The Son's living in me. I just need to figure out how to get myself out of the way. <laughs> you know, I'd bear a whole lot more fruit if I quit trying to do it all. All I do is make a mess of things. No, if I let Him do the work. If I stop grieving the Holy Spirit, I stop quenching the Holy Spirit, I actually start being led by the Spirit. And what's the Spirit leading me in? The things of the Father, the things of the Son. Alright, we'll have more on that as we get into those realms. I think this passage is also fruitful. I've got two minutes to explain this. We'll have to spend some time on this next week. Point F. This passage illustrates the comparisons and contrasts of faith. What is the difference between believe that, believe me, and believe in me? We have a progression here. In verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. And I'm going to give you something to chew on and think about. And you may not like it. I hope you don't. All right, Doug? You may not like it, but think about it. Chew on it. Believe that, believe me, believe in me. In verse 10, it's believe that. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? It's a statement of information that may or may not be true. If Jesus is saying it, you assume it's true, right? But it is a fact that you either believe or you don't believe in a bit of information. Believe that. And then there's believe me. A person who is communicating a message. Now, is it possible to believe a person but not believe the content? Sure. It's also also possible to not believe a person, but you do believe the content. Or mix and match, right? You can believe the content but not believe the person. Or you can believe both. Or you cannot believe either. All right. Or do you believe, do you place your trust in a person? What's the difference between believe me and believe in me? 
There's a difference. That's right. I'm either trusting you and for what you're saying or I'm putting my trust in you for who you are. For who you are. Okay? And I may not believe that because the, the message is, is uh, because the content, the information is uh, just outrageous. Okay? You know, um, let me just pick a stat that you just find hard to believe. Just unthinkable. And 80% of all statistics are just made up anyway, so. Do you believe that? Okay. 90% of all Canadians live within 100 miles of the American border. Do you believe that? You know, look how huge that country is. It goes all the way to the Arctic Circle, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And yet 90% of every Canadian lives within 100 miles of, of the, the southern border, the American border. Do you believe that? Do you believe me? Do you believe in me? Okay. I might be lying to you. Don't believe me. And don't believe some fact I come up with. Okay. But now when Jesus tells you something, do you believe Jesus? And do you believe in Jesus? And what I want you to chew on is ask yourself, when it comes to giving the, the gospel that you give to kids or adults or friends or enemies or whatever, when you're giving the gospel, is the gospel believe that, believe, or believe in? And there's a huge difference. Okay, don't answer now. Just chew on it. And I'm going to spend a good part of next week laying that out there. Because I think there's some flawed Gospels out there. And fortunately, of course, the Holy Spirit's omnipotent enough to overcome bad phraseology. But we want to be as accurate as we can based on the convictions of Scripture. Believe that, believe, or believe in. We'll talk about that. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. We thank you, Father, that we can walk by faith and not by sight. We thank you that we can study to show ourselves approved. We thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells us, who guides us into all things, teaches us all things, even the deep things of God. And Father, sometimes when our heads are just spinning and we're, we're bewildered as Philip saying, show us the Father, uh, you do. You do show us. You show us patiently. If we lack wisdom, we ask and you give to all generously and without reproach. You don't call us names or, or Father, you're just so patient. And so we learn a little bit here, a little bit there. We don't know it all, but we know more than we knew yesterday. And we're going to know more tomorrow. So, Father, I just thank you for your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen.